I'm Dr. Wendy Bruton, and I used to be a therapist. Welcome to my podcast. Each week, I'll be sharing life stories, interviews, and information that I know will be of value to you and to your life and to the lives that you touch. If you need a therapist or just someone who used to be a therapist, I hope that this is a place where you feel valued, valuable, and learn to move forward from what you used to be. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, everyone. I hope you're doing well and staying safe out there in this crazy world right now. Just so glad that you're here with us today. So on this episode, we get to hear an interview I did with Dr. Colleen Mullen. Dr. Mullen is a licensed marriage and family therapist, and she lives in San Diego, California. She runs a private practice and is an honest-to-goodness chaostician. We get to hear a little bit more about that in the interview. Colleen is a host of a great podcast that I really love to listen to called Coaching Through Chaos. Dr. Mullen is also the author of a book on leadership for women that I have loved reading. Um, It's called Stop Bitching, Just Lead, the 60-day plan for embracing your inner leader. Highly recommend it. Colleen has had a lifetime filled with unexpected changes and transitions. We talk in this interview about the change that happened when her mother died suddenly and she took her sister in to live with her. I'm really excited for you to get to hear that story. Let's listen. Welcome, Colleen. Thank you so much for being here. Honestly, I am so happy you are here. (laughs) And I have been so encouraged by you. And listening to your podcast has been a blessing to me. So I'm really thankful that you're here. And yeah, just thanks a lot. Wow. Thank you. So a little introduction. I'd love to have a little introduction from you. Tell us about yourself, what you do, who you live with, all that stuff. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I'll go a little bit about the professional first and then a little bit of the personal. So I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist here in San Diego, and I've been in practice for myself at Coaching Through Chaos since 2009. Uh, I love my work with my clients, and I've also mentored intern therapists into their own practices over the years. So that work also makes me feel good too. And I've also hosted two podcasts for the last few years. I've been hosting Coaching Through Chaos since 2015 and hosting Shrink to Shrink on Film. And Coaching Through Chaos is... I say conversations to help people conquer the chaos in their life. And Shrink to Shrink is two therapists talking about life and love through one movie a month. And my co-host and I, we love that show. Coming up in April or May this year, I'm going to be launching the Embrace Your Inner Leader podcast, which is to help empower women. Uh, And that is a companion to a book that I wrote called Stop Bitching, Just Lead, The 60-Day Plan for Embracing Your Inner Leader. And I'm in the process of launching a podcast coaching business for professionals called Podcast Launch Experts. So that's my professional life currently. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And personally, though, like I also hopefully 
live a nice, balanced, like, personal life also. So I have a boyfriend that uh, we live together, but also in my home, it's a little unconventional. I have a sister that I take care of that I know we're going to do some talking about. Yeah. And um, and I have a, uh, I'm fortunate to have made uh, a lot of friends over the years here in California. I'm 20 years living in California, and I am just so grateful for the friends that I have. So I try and see them a lot. And I like to get out and exercise and be outdoors and, you know, do all the beachy, you know, Southern California lifestyle stuff. So, yeah, I try and enjoy my life around the professional things that I also really love to do. That is a lot of stuff to do. Yeah. I I know, but it's all it's all fun, and I love I I don't do anything that I don't like doing. I actually did listen to your podcast, the uh, Shrink to Shrink. It made me laugh, and and I really loved all the insights. I mean, it was like a great show. I will listen to some more of that. Thank so, you, thank you. We yeah. have an episode out covering the Joker, which is just was made for our show, basically. <laughs> just all the psych stuff that's in it. It was fun to do. Good. Okay. So I can't wait for more of those. So I have read your book. And actually, one of the reasons why I really wanted to reach out to you is because I read your book and the first part of it, your story is filled with times of change in your life. Mm -hmm. You have change over and over in your life. And lots of um, moving from one vision of who you are going to be to moving to another vision of who you're going to be. Yeah. So there was, and and a lot of uncertainty in the middle of some of those times too. So the beginning of my book does tell a bit of my journey into leadership and uh, I was, I was a, abused and had a terrible relationship with my mother as a child, but also was this performing kid. I played the piano. I was very good at classical piano. I was competitive. And I had these almost two different little identities growing up, too, that I didn't think anything of myself, yet I would get on stage and be applauded and get thrown into these competitions and do pretty well at them. And then that rug of the music was kind of pulled out from under me with uh, an incident with my mother. And I was kind of thrown into adulthood, not knowing at all what I was going to do now that college and performing, well, studying music in college was taken away from me. And I did flounder a bit and went in and out of a lot of self-destructive behavior. But then I also held a job for my father's law firm in my 20s. And so while I was also kind of self-destructing after hours, it took me a while to kind of get out from under that rock and also decide that I just was not going to be, he wanted me to be an attorney. And it was also that inner struggle of the loyalty I had to him. So it was hard for me to leave, even though I knew as an adult, I needed to have my own life and my own loyalty to others and things. I couldn't break myself away until I was a little bit older. And I got an idea in my head that was started when I was in my teens that I wanted to be a therapist. And I always had the secret dream of living in California. So um, I'd gotten married in my late 20s, well, mid 20s, I guess. And I just knew it was not the right thing for me to do. And when I ended that relatively quickly after this humongous traditional Catholic New York wedding, I 
decided I better like not like wear the egg on my face for too long and better do something with my life and make something out of this change. And so I decided that that's when I was going to go back to school with a purpose of graduating quickly and um, then going to California to go to graduate school. And that's what I did. And it turned out to be the day after my 30th birthday, I drove across the country by myself to to go attend the graduate school that I'd gotten into and sh- start my life differently. So now we're 20 years later and here I am. <laughs> wow, that's an amazing story. And for everybody out there who has not read the book, you need to get it and read the story because it's fabulous. I mean, it was very inspiring to me. Oh, thank you. But I would... I would love to talk today about the change that has happened in your life over the past year and a half or Yeah, two it's almost two years coming up in May. Yeah. Yeah. So tell so, us about that. Yeah. So my father had died uh, in 2009. And so I have this sister who has, um, we would call them uh, developmental and global delays and some motor um, skill uh, slowness uh, and other things that keep her kind of young, right? Kind of like always like a little sister permanently. And uh, she was living with my mother in New York and my mother had gotten sick and we didn't know how sick she was until she went into the hospital around like May 1st of 2018. And by the end of that week, we knew that she had four progressed cancers and she was opting out of out of treatment because they said, well, maybe we could help you live to six months. So without the treatment, they said probably up to two months. My sister also, in her stress of my mom being in the ICU for a few days, uh, fell because her coordination is poor, right? And so she was distracted and fell and shattered her ankle and also ended up in the same hospital at the same time. So my brother in New York called me and said, you know, I, I need you out here. Like, can you please just like find a way to come out here? He goes, they're both in the hospital and they have a dog. He goes, and he goes, and I, it's just a lot to handle. So I I also knew at that time that my mother wasn't taking treatment. So I knew when I left that when I came back to California that I was no longer going to have any parents, that my mother would now have died because I was going to stay until that happened. And I will have uh, inherited Susie. But I also knew that, like, I mean, I was a single woman living on the beach in California and never had kids. And just knew my life was going to change. And um, so I I did leave. I talked to all my clients right away and said, you know, something's come up and I need to leave town and I may be gone probably minimum two months, maybe six months. I don't know. And worked remotely with my clients and, um, and went there to be there mainly for Susie to help her get through the loss of, of our mother. And uh, the beautiful end of that part of it is that they, the nursing home where my mother went made some kind of like arrangement to allow her to be there under what they called wound care. And Susie was there also in the same nursing home for rehabbing her ankle. So for having lived 47 years with my mother, she never got to live a day away from her until she passed. And so it, it was... Um, That's beautiful. Yeah. It was really, it was something that needed to happen. And I keep thinking in that, like the universe, you know, whatever you believe in, you know, the universe kind of had things happen in ways that like, number one, made made things easier to grasp and 
like logistically able to deal with. And, you know, and just on a practical end, when Susie did come to live with me, it was the first time in my life I ever had a two-bedroom apartment, but I was prepared to take her in. And whereas I might not have been, you know, a year before that, you know, so things just kind of happened. And so it changed my life. So I basically have become her parent, you know, in many respects. And she lives with me. And yeah, and I know I know you have some specific things you want to ask me about that. I do. I I wanted to know, so how did you come to the decision that you would take your sister in to live with you? I mean, uh-huh. there's a lot of people in your family or mm-hmm. how was that decision made? So Susie and I, we've always been close and, and we we always knew that someday my mother would pass away and she would come to live with me. Just my mother died young, relatively young. She was only, like, I think, 73. And so I thought maybe we'd get like another 10 years before that happened. Sure. And so, uh, but I did have brothers, but it just wasn't really an option. It was just kind of always assumed? I did. I always knew that I was going to have Susie live with me. I just didn't know when. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you had didn't have a conversation about it necessarily? Well, we did over the years. And I even was trying to get them, my mother and Susie, to move out to California. I just thought it would be easier and better for being around for them and everything else. So it was something that, you know, we all did talk about. And then when my mother got sick, I had an opportunity to talk to her in the nursing home and and say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take Susie in. I even got a plan to take my mom's uh, car, which was like an old SUV, like a 2001 uh, Honda, a little SUV, and fill it up with as much of Susie's belongings as I could. And I drove it across the country so that Susie would have some continuity of her life. And we had a brother in San Diego also who was in the military and he was leaving a mo- like about a month after my mother passed. So I had that time then I could fly Susie to his house. I would then drive Susie's belongings across the country because I also thought selfishly, not selfishly, that I needed some space. I needed some time to process what I had just gone through and what I was getting into because I, I my whole life was going to change. So that's why I took the trip for as long as I did. I was able to keep my income going by working remotely. And I just thought, gosh, I need some space to myself to figure this out and to kind of get my head around going home and permanently having her with me. Yeah, you have like a three series episodes of your podcast. Yes. On the, and I loved the podcast about you, or the episode about you coming across the country. That was a great. Thanks. Yeah. So your sister flew out. You, you drove out yes. with all of your stuff. Um, and this is like after your mom had passed away, she had died, and you had been there for a couple months. Mm-hmm. And I know that you had even mentioned here just a little bit ago about your abuse that you had mm-hmm. had with your mom was abusive during your growing up time. Mm-hmm. And how did you reconnect enough with your mom to have discussions about you bringing your sister in to live with you? How, how did that happen? Yeah, uh, that one is actually really easy. I resolved a long time ago, like my mother and I had had some talks and she was able to 
say that she was sorry and that this was what she knew from her relationship with her mother. And, you know, and then over the years, you know, my mother's emotional capability was limited, like she for attachment. And we since found all sorts of things out as to why that attachment might have been hard for her. And So she was, though, in general, very anxious and scared of the world and very depressed. I I learned a long time ago to just kind of accept my mom for how she was going to be. I lost that desire to say, well, maybe now she'll change. Maybe now she'll tell me how much she loves me and stuff. And she did over time, you know, and now I take pride in actually helping helping others. Like a lot of the work that I do, a lot of the times I, I think is helping others. Like I talk to people about putting on different lenses. Like if I was going to go see my mom, I would put on the lenses that help me see her clearly that say, I'm not going to hope that this is something different. I know what I'm going to get when I see her. So that that has been for many, many, many years. You know, it was still like I had other people in my life that filled the emotional gaps where I missed a mother figure, you know, and and she knew that over time. And then even at the end of her life, we got to have a real good actual chat about that. And it was nice for her to say that she was grateful that this other woman was filling in those spots because she knew that it just wasn't something that she was had done with me. Yeah. And she probably just wasn't even able to, it wasn't like she didn't want to, it was just that she had no capacity for that. And that that takes a journey, uh, right? Like Mm -hmm. takes a journey to get to that place. Oh yeah. And there's a, there was a lot of ups and downs and I remember being even mad when I got my doctorate. So I'd gotten my master's and then a few years later, like I'm getting my doctorate and one of the quirks of my mother, she would never actually pick up the phone and call. She would have Susie call anybody, whether it was calling my father at work when we were growing up and they were married, you know, or whatever. They, she just would have Susie call. She just wasn't comfortable on the phone. So until like we kind of like I accepted that that's just how she is, I used to get mad and be like, well, mom won't even call me. But this is kind of how disconnected that she was then emotionally. So I'm in California now about nine years and I'm getting my doctorate and it's graduation day and she has Susie call me and she, Susie says, mom wants to know what you're getting your doctorate in. And uh, I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And, and I'm like, well, okay. So I've been in private practice already for like three years. Like, do you not know? Like I'm a psych- like for psychology, like this is what I'm here for. This is my career. Like it was one of those things. But in that moment, I remember because it's just one of those times in life where you trip back into the mud. And I remember just being like so hurt. Like, how could she not know? And then, you know, in reflection, I go, all right, she probably knew and didn't know specifics, but the way that it was asked, and of course being asked through my sister's language, you know, it just kind of got like misconstrued as one of these very disconnected, oh yeah, so you've been there 10 years, what are you even getting it for? You know, and- (laughs) Why are you doing this? Yeah. Yeah. So, Um, you know, and then of course I'm working in the field, I'm doing a lot of work with, you know, women over the years in particular who have similar relationships and it helps you grow in your own way of, and then also going, well, if this is 
what I'm going to be help guiding somebody else do, I have to be practicing this and living congruent with that. And I think that that was a good like journey for me also in, in learning how to do that. Yeah. I actually learned from a woman in San Diego who runs a clinic there. And she, remember her telling me, she's like, Wendy, you got to be smoking what you're selling. Yes. And that's what you're talking about is just that you got to be smoking what you're selling. You have to be doing, you know, go through your own stuff so that you can help other people. And that's a fabulous that you got to do that. Oh yeah. I mean, even like career wise. So I take pride in being a really good relationship therapist, you know, and I work with couples who have a lot of conflict and still want to work through it. But I had had this second marriage, uh, you know, that the relationship was almost a decade long. And and I felt like a hypocrite there because it was the only place like we went to therapist after therapist. And I and, and I had to accept I was with a partner who did not want to work on the relationship, did not want to talk about anything. And I'm like, well, out of anybody that I come in contact with, my home life and my home relationship should be healthy than the other relationships around me, or at least as healthy. And I just got to a point there. So I even carried some shame over time, which I've since let go of, but about being this relationship therapist who was now like divorced. And and it is divorced twice. I say one time was before I learned anything about relationships. And the other time I stepped into the mud. I also know that with him, I, I met him when I was grieving the loss of a brother and my father. And he was from another from Australia and was like, well, his visa had run out and the university wasn't going to have work. And I was like, well, why don't we get married? Because in my head, I was like, I can't take another man that I love leaving me right now, you know? So to anybody listening, don't just do that casually. <laughs> No, you want to get married (laughs) because then it took, then it turned into eight more years of trying to make something work that never should have worked because I did meet him when I was grieving and he represented something to me that I quickly didn't need. So yeah, this journey of like, you know, practicing what you preach, smoking what you're selling is really, really important for doing, for, for doing work. And, and then being able to hold your head up when you go home and feel good about the life that you've created for yourself. Um, so you're not living in, in silence or, 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 or shame or secret behaviors, right? No. That's just a rabbit hole nobody needs to go down and certainly not anybody's therapist. <laughs> no, oh, no, no, we don't need to do that. Okay, so let's. I want to come back a little bit to this new change in your life. You reconnected with your mom, and then you end up with your sister living with you. Mm-hmm. Did you know, or was there like a specific time when you knew that your life was going to change? Or like maybe even more, was there a specific time that you knew your life had changed? Literally that phone call before I even left for New York, the phone call that came in where where my brother was saying, you, you have to come out here, or it may have been also the phone call with the hospital that week. It was all like blur. But I remember sitting in my office because I got the calls when I was at my, my office, and I remember sitting there going, like it just hit me. And I remember being hard to breathe and going, oh, like, holy, holy crap, like this is it. Yeah. 
Like there's no no turning around from this. And there is no choice whether I wanted one or not. And, and it wasn't that I needed to have an option to not take my sister because there was. I had one brother who, who, who offered, but there were circumstances where that wasn't going to work out anyway. But I just thought, no, like I, I know how Susie can thrive and I want her to have a good life. And I knew we talked about it and I wasn't going to let her down. And so it wasn't that I needed another option, but I just knew like that was going to be it. So there's that um, moment, of course. Um, another moment would have been, uh, well, losing my brother. I have a brother who uh, died of suicide. I didn't put that in the book. I figured that'll go come for the next version. But, um, in, in 2007 and uh, he was 28 and it was a long struggle and I was very connected to his struggle and we were very, very close. I was very parent-like to him over the years. I was much older than him and, um, losing him changed me in other ways that phone call. And it's a very mixed bag when, when you lose someone to suicide like that. So that definitely shaped some of my perceptions in the world as well. And then, you know, on a happier note, you know, driving across the country, you know, on my 30th birthday going, oh my gosh, I finally made a choice for myself and I just can't wait to see how this pans out. Like I remember thinking that as I'm driving out in my, you know, 1994 Beretta leaving New York. <laughs> It was in 2000, so my car barely was making it across at that point. <laughs> but you did it. But I did. And you're like, this is my life is changing right here. Yes. That's a huge change. Yes, there's lots lots of uh, data points of change and um and I take pride also in the fact that like I'm a person who like I can embrace change. Like I don't get scared of it. Um, mm-hmm. We're recording this now where lots of us are on lockdown unofficially from coronavirus. Right. And there's people freaking out. I have more clients scheduled remotely next week than I have in, in weeks because people just are scared of change and scared of what's going on. And I think I learned to to be adaptable and embrace change early on or embrace things that I couldn't control really was the, the early lesson and then just embrace it as change over time. That's very skillful. Thank you. I mean, I mean, really, it is very skillful. And to be able to have that adaptable, almost an adaptable spirit, mm. right? Yeah. I think of it as resiliency, right? Oh, um, it absolutely is resilience. Yeah. yeah. And and people can learn it. And some people, I think, are just kind of born with it. I, I'm thinking I'm lucky enough to have been born with some set of resiliency in me. Sure. So you have this resilience, but... Let's talk about just bringing your sister in with you, just, mm-hmm. just even that change. Yeah. Accepting that, even though you're like, yay, I like change. This is great. It yeah. must have been hard, right? There, there have to have been hard times. So oh, yeah. what was something that was really hard for you to accept? Yeah. Um, the two of us had to, to work into learning to just all of a sudden see each other all the time. But I now was, in addition to having my day job and trying to be like a single woman in dating, I was now also the advocate for my sister. And some mm-hmm. of the things that um, were just so frustrating was seeing how the system was working, like literally against her, that if I if she didn't have an advocate, she would not know how to get services for herself, because that's literally why she needs services. She doesn't right. do those things. But the, there was frustration in like the lack of ability to get her services 
even with the knowledge that I had of the system. So it's also, you know, there was frustration in what I needed to take on as far as how do I maintain my lifestyle where I get to still go out, go away, do these things and provide for her in a way that like her little social security check doesn't do. I wanted to give her pretty much everything I was able to have in life. And to do that, I had to also then work more and all that other stuff too. So it's a lot of adjusting. (laughs) It was like taking on it, like becoming a mom, like you said. Yeah. And really kind of feeling that way and settling into the idea that she might be, you know, my quote unquote, my kid, you know, I joke and people like now they say, oh, do you have kids? I'm like, yeah, she just turned 48, you know? And and so, um, uh, but like, she's not going to grow up and like go off to college or, you know, do these things. And yes, she could go to school. So for those listening, she is, you know, capable of things, but her life will be living with me for the most part. And it changes that kind of like forever aspect is something I've never really had to grasp in my life. So that was different. (laughs) That is a big change of expectations. Yes. Yeah. 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 And focus, like where your focus is. Mm -hmm. Well, yes. And then how do I, and then, um, you know, the, the quality of the life I want to live, like if I'm working so much, can I still travel and, you know, find a, boyfriend or whatever, you know, find a partner and and be a good person to her and spend enough time with the people that I still want to spend time with. And yeah, it was a lot of uh, figuring things out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did you, when you were doing all that, like figuring things out and going through all those changes, mm-hmm. did you go through any kind of deep sadness times? Sadness, um, frustration, fear that I wasn't going to, that I was going to mess up. Like there's more fear about like, gosh, I hope I don't like F this up, you know, and um, frustration, sometimes isolation. Um, But I I do have someone that's been a a really great support to me. And she's just been tremendous to me as as a mother figure to me. And so so I had that resource. But I remember a couple of times just kind of driving home from work and kind of crying a little bit and going, oh my God, I can't believe like, this is just it. And it's okay. Like, you know, it's not bad. I know she's going to listen to this. So she knows I love her tremendously. And she knows that we both had to learn a lot. I mean, also the first six months of it too was every single day she um, would text me during Jeopardy, um, whether I was at work or if I was at home, it would be the tears would come and I would just know the minute the theme song started because they watched that every day that um, tears were coming and I was going to need to comfort her. And if I was at work, I, I'll be in session a few nights a week and I would know after you know the 7.30 hour that there would be a text waiting for me that would say, I'm sitting here crying, watching Jeopardy and thinking of mom. And so then we'd have to, then I'd have, I'd either comfort through the text and say, Hey, sending you a hug and mom loves you. And like, you know, and I'll see you in a little while. And then we hug when I get home. So there was that on a daily basis. So, sure. and, and you think about like, I had my own grief, right. And, yeah. and my grief was, was mixed and, and everything, but, but it was grief in itself. And then I also had to help her through her grief. So some of, of my the frustration, the isolation and stuff in the beginning was kind of on that level too, of just having to like do this every single day and know that like going, gosh, I wonder when this is going to change. Yeah. And it did. Because she knew that somebody was there protecting her somehow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I, I did want to ask also, I mean, I asked about sadness, but there has to have been times of unexpected joy, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We we actually have a lot of fun and we laugh a lot. Uh, I always joke that, you know, that I'm going to I'm going to go do stand up someday and I'm going to plant Susie in the audience because she'll make she'll make everybody else think I'm hysterical. So because uh, <laughs> she she laughs at like everything. And in, in, in this too, my, my house is made up now of myself and Susie. And then my boyfriend did move in. We've been together about a year and a half now. And he's he's like has as much fun with her and I as 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 he and I do together. And so and that's just been wonderful, too, to kind of in the middle of all this, like actually fall in love with somebody who's a good person, a person who's raised his own kids and, you know, and just kind of gets this and gets Susie and wants to be my partner and pseudo step parent to Susie. I mean, really just amazing. So we all kind of have our laughs together. It's, it's really a cute little mm-hmm. existence. And, um, <laughs> Good. So did you have a process though? I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking like your vision for your life, mm-hmm. the way that it was going before all this, and you, you knew that Susie was going to come live with you, but not right away, right? Like no. not this, not this soon. Oh and yeah. No, no. And so what was the process kind of, of for creating that vision of how it was going to go and how your life was going to be different? So I adopted early on with this situation that if I just keep, if I do what I think is the right thing to do, it will work itself out. Whatever the problem is, it'll work itself out. Sometimes it's, it it works itself out as I would like it to. And sometimes it doesn't. And then we adapt and we say, okay, well, if this is how it's going to be for now, let's figure out what we need to do. But I just keep going with the motivation of like, I do what I think is right. Like even just the whole idea of like, you know, Susie never got her nails done before, but, and I know my mom did. And I just, I didn't realize Susie had never gotten a manicure. So I figure if I'm going, she should go. Like, I am not going to do stuff for myself that I wouldn't have for her. And it might not be, I mean, and it's a privileged place to live and maybe it's also kind of frivolous, but it's these things, little things that help her feel more connected and more normal, right? And if if her big sister's doing this, like she gets to live just like me. And, um, and I know that that means something to her. And so it just feels like it's a thing that I should be doing. It's the right thing to do. So that's been my like the theme that I live with in my head, that when something presents itself, I go, okay, well, what do I think is right? Not necessarily what is it that I want to do. It's like, what do I think is the right thing to do? And then I do that because in my life, so so how this changed too in my life, I never had to think that far ahead. I mean, I had my business, I, I do the things I do professionally, but I would just kind of roam around in my personal life, you know, and this all of a sudden then I'm like, oh, so now I have life insurance that I never thought about. And I had to go get qualified at at 48 years old for life insurance. And so like kind of thinking about those kind of things, like I never had to think about that before. Looking at relationships, I was dating, you know, and that was a weird experience to all of a sudden, like, get back to California and go, oh, can I date? Like, what is this going to look like? And that's why, like, when I did meet Mike, you know, it was a few months after I got back and it just, it felt like, oh, like, I keep doing what I think is right. And look, oh, there's like some icing being tossed to me from a, for this cake. So I look at it, I'm like, oh, good. I, I get a little, you know, little gift in all this too, on top of everything that I'm trying to give to her. 
I love that. That's a great thing. So let's talk, we're going to talk about your personal life there, but let's talk about your job as a therapist. How has that changed? Has it? I mean, going through this change with your mom dying and um, having to bring in your sister, I mean, has that impacted your work at all? It does. Um, I still can't say I have the perspective of a parent. I didn't give birth and raise her, right? But I do have a parenting perspective in some regards. I definitely have this special needs parenting perspective and understand that. But how I've always looked at, at things, because obviously from the life story in the book, like like I've been through a lot over my lifetime that have also informed me to being a therapist or even made me want to be a therapist. And I always just think, you know, my clients don't have to know my whole story because that's not our role, but, but it allows me to really... Like they just get sometimes that I understand them in a way maybe they haven't felt understood before because I really get the pain. I get the fear. I get some of the stuff that they went through, just like I get when women have been abused by their mothers. I can really relate to those clients and those clients believe that I understand them and they don't they may not know it's because I went through a similar experience, but but I can connect in that way. You can put language probably to their experience. Mm-hmm. And so when you reflect back that language and articulate it, they feel, in Daniel Siegel's words, right, feel felt. Yes. And that has been something that that I've always kind of like used in therapy. And then to be honest, I mean, for as much as you went online and, and listened to my story, I have a poster out in my waiting room with some of the episodes from the podcast. So they're aware that I do the podcast. Some of them are subscribers. Some of them have read my book. And so I have gotten reflections of like from a client of mine who read the book. She came in and said, oh, just so you know, I read your book. And I knew that like you must have gotten me somehow that you, you know, and, and now I understand how you got to here. And it helps them connect with me in a certain way, but we're not using it in therapy. We don't then commiserate or let them go down the path of like, how did you deal with it? That's not my role as their therapist. But because now there's a lot of like life gets blurred between the the public and the private, because I put a lot out there in the podcasts and the books, uh, because I do think it's helpful. They do have this knowledge about me, um, which maybe helps them feel connected to me. And that's a good thing for the therapeutic relationship. Absolutely. I think it's, I think the authenticity can't help, but help that relationship, like help relationship all, you know, all over. So do you think that there are things that you learned through this that you could not have learned any other way? Yeah, that is a tough, a tough question. I knew, right, you were going to ask me that. And I had to think about that one. What I think I really learned is that I've always been a person that does a lot, right? I'm always revved up and doing 10 million projects and trying to be super social and always kind of going, going, going. And I I learned through this to kind of really like look and appreciate the life that I created, not just for Susie, but the one that I had been creating over the last 20 years here in California, professionally with my friends, like, and it really helped me to kind of go, oh, I couldn't do what I'm doing for her had I not 
already done what I did and I don't even think I would stop to appreciate it before. And now like I'm super grateful. I learned to to like stop and smell my own roses, you know, like that kind of right. thing and appreciate it because I don't think that I did. I did like a lot of people who just do a lot. We just keep going and don't really go, oh, this was really cool that I did this, or this was really like, like, I really enjoy this. And this is why I do it. Now, that's why in the beginning, I said, you know, like, I do still have a lot of projects going on at any given time and work things. But I don't do anything that I don't actually really, really, truly enjoy. And Mm -hmm. so that is what I learned through this. I love that. And even going through this, you found ways to see what you have done intentionally. Mm -hmm. Like, are intentionally looking at what you have done. I think that's pretty cool. Like, and growing a support system and. Oh yeah. You had done that before. I mean, even listening to your podcast, I think you were talking about that and how you had, you had done that before. Mm-hmm. You had created this support system beforehand because you certainly can't do it after like no. we're in the middle of crisis or chaos, right? Yes really hard to build a support system, but you did that before. Yes. And so, and that's, that's one of those things where I feel very fortunate, like going, oh, this can happen because like all these things are in place to help me do this for her. Oh, and I do, because I know she's going to listen. I do want to say just how, like how she's changed through this. I mean, like you, like there's this visual of Susie is just so different. And I know I even sent you that picture, right? So, and on the outside, like Susie has lost like 85 pounds since she came to live with me. And it's not because we sit there and she starves herself and has a diet or anything else. It's because all of a sudden she's living a life that is socially connected, where she has some purpose every day where she goes to the clubhouse, where if she needs something, she can say, hey, can I get this? And I always tell, I said, I'm the most permissive parent ever. I'm like, do I ever tell you no? So I do, but not really. And, and so, you know, so she she gets what she needs or she can say, I want something where she never really could before because of finances and the life that they were living. And she she's conscious of what she puts in her body, but she still eats what she wants, but she now has a better understanding of things and it matters to her because now she's she's able to do more things with her, with friends, but she didn't have friends before. And she, she had a couple of people in New York that she met online that would still message with her, but she didn't have social friends. Now we're at the point where like Mike and I will be out for like our morning walk and she'll text me and say, oh, you know, you know, my girlfriends are coming over and we're going to go sit at the pool. We're going to go in the pool or we're going to go to Subway and get lunch and then bring it to the pool. I'm like, okay. Like, and she has this socially connected, active, purposeful life and it has like transformed her. So she just looks like a totally different person. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. I mean, it seems like it had transformed her like from the inside out. Yeah. Right. Yes. And that's how I look at it. Cause you know, and she's, she's funny cause she learns about like low carb stuff and they do that at the clubhouse to give people options and it's trendy to, to do those things. And so, and we were doing that for a while at the house. So people will say, Oh, what do you do? She'll say, Oh, I go low carb. And I'm like, no, you don't. I'm like, you're eating chocolate and cookies and whatever, but she's eating, she's eating in moderation, doing all those things that keep a person healthy. And it's important to her now, not about vanity. I mean, like that's, it's more important that she just kind of keeps the progress that she made because she feels proud of it. And that's really cool to see. 
That's really, really cool. I loved seeing that picture. Okay. Is there anything else you wanted to say before that? I mean, I want to hear, I'm going to ask you three more questions and I want to also hear about how people can connect with you and all that. But before that, maybe there's something that, you know, somebody may be going through similar situations that you could give them some insight. Yeah. It it sounds cliche, but like you don't know what you're made of until you're put in the situation. And, And even though I can speak the language and know the system and stuff like that, I also came from a place of not knowing how to navigate it. Uh, so it, it, it can be done. And, and if maybe it will help somebody else to think, well, what do I think is the right thing to do, right? And we have to set aside our, our needs and wants in the moment to go, well, this is temporary because I'll be able to put that back in place in the future, which I definitely have at this point. But it's kind of like, what do I need to do right now? What's the right thing to do? And also, fear is transitory. And so you you can be really scared in a moment Mm-hmm. And there's some kind of solution. Somebody can guide you, some way to find the answer to what you need, and the fear will dissipate. I probably, you know, like I promise. Yeah. Uh, so, but I also think a lot of people think, and I do. I have this reflection even from from other therapist friends that are like, "Well, I don't know that I could take on my sister like that." And I'm like, "Well, I don't think that you'd not do it. Like, what other option is there?" I get that people reflect that, but I just, it's one of those things nobody knows until you're in that position, what that would be like had I not taken her. Neither of us would probably, I can't even go down that path because she'd be living probably in a group home or something. And that's not what she needs, although those are very good for some people. But I thought, you know, she shows that she really grows every day doing something new. And so she doesn't need that right now. And I'm fine with having her as part of my home and my family, literally my current family, not just my family of origin, as we would say. Sure, but she's yeah. like your immediate. Yeah, my immediate family. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's a book that's called Boiling Oil Grace. And that, what you're saying is kind of reminds me of that, that book. And just the idea of that sometimes we don't, we would never know we could actually do certain things until we have to do those Mm -hmm. things. And we don't actually have those skills or those capabilities or even vision to be able to do it Mm -hmm. until we have to do it. Oh yeah. And and there's no way to plan. Uh, Mm -hmm. You can, you can go and say, okay, well, what's the next step? Right. And just one day at a time works for a lot of situations, I find. So uh, what do I need to figure out today? Because if I think about all the things that I needed to figure out on August 1st of 2018, I would have probably buried myself in the sand. So, yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's it's like that when you're even having a baby, right? Yeah. Like you have this baby and you don't have to figure out right then where they're going to college or how you're going to apply for student loans or you're, you don't have to figure out where they're, you know, even going to preschool. You mm-hmm. only have to figure out, are you going to get yourself to the hospital and have this baby and hold it? That's yes. It. That's great. Good way of articulating that. So. Thanks. Okay. Before I ask you the last three questions that I ask everybody, uh, I want to give you a chance to tell everybody about what you are doing and if there's things that, ways that we can contact you. I'll put it in the show notes too, but how do we get in touch with you? 
Sure. So my work as a therapist is on coachingthroughchaos.com. You can also find the podcast at coachingthroughchaospodcast.com. And on social media, I'm at Dr. Colleen Mullen on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And and that's probably good if somebody's hearing this and uh, maybe kind of caught on about like embrace your inner leader and is kind of interested in that. That's where I'd go just to kind of follow on Instagram mm-hmm. uh, because I will be launching that. There's nothing really out there on it right now. So social media at Dr. Colleen Mullen or the coachingthroughchaos.com for the work and the podcast. Perfect. Uh, I'm sure lots of people will be hunting you down. Okay, so these are the three questions I ask everybody. The first one is, tell us about a pivotal event that changed you. Well, I think we just spent the whole time talking about it, right? But um, I, was, but I, that. I know that's, but that's, but that's great, right? So it's it's that, or probably losing my brother um, uh, in 2017. So losing my brother, gaining my sister, two very opposite pivotal moments, but yeah. had a lot of impact. Again. Mm-hmm. So a person who changed you. Right. So that would be the therapist that I had when I was 17. So I left home after like one final beating and and I don't remember if I was seeing this therapist already or not, uh, but I remember taking my father to an appointment and uh, he said to my father, you know, which was so validating for me and said, you know, Colleen seems to be the smartest person in this family because she's the only one that sees that she needs to stay out of the house in order to save her own life. Like she'll be, she will die if she stays. And I think he was either saying that like, you know, my mother had the potential at the time because it was so rough to, to actually inadvertently kill me or I might kill myself. I'd never actively been suicidal, but I think he saw that there was that potential there if I was left to keep getting subjected to that. And, um, and so my father, you know, we, he had the means to help me out. And so we worked something out for him to help me stay at different places, but I never did live at my parents' home again. And that experience also came after an experience in therapy where my mother and I shared a husband and wife team. And it was not a good experience when I was 13. And there was a lot of violence going on. And I just, something, it just didn't work for me. It didn't feel like I could trust that I would be safe because it turned out that I wasn't. Uh, And in fact, I couldn't get anybody to hear how bad it was. So this therapist at 17 then then validating my running away and saying, well, she's not dropping out of school. She's not saying she's going to go like live. I didn't have any boyfriends, but go run off with a boy. Like, I mean, I just wanted to stay out of my house. I wanted to not have to get hit in the head anymore, you know, and so that that then changed how I I was just like after that I remember after that session even thinking like someday I want to be able to do that for other people. And so and I have since learned that he has passed on um but I actually even revisited him 10 years later when I when I was going through the, um my divorce in my 20s and I went there just to kind of check in and go is there something wrong with me like everybody likes him but I know that this isn't what is going to be good for me. And he just kind of revalidated what he did for me when I was 17. It was just kind of like, like, you know yourself better. You know, there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. I had enrolled in a big university. He's like, you're not floundering. Like, you figured it out and you have a plan. Just keep going. And so he was amazing. And uh, he's the reason that I became a therapist, really, because of that experience. 
And you got to change a lot of people's lives because of that too. So his influence in the world just keeps going on, right? Yes. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. The last question is a book that changed you. I'm on a mission this year to get people to read books, I guess. I, you know what? When I went to graduate school, uh-huh. <laughs> I graduated from my PhD. I was like, I'm never reading. Again, Again right? That's how it goes. I, <laughs> I don't want to read anymore. So I just, this year I'm like, okay, I got to get my stuff together. And I, I'm, in, I'm reading a lot more. So I thought, well, I'm going to do that this year and find out what people are reading. Okay. So a book. A book that changed you. Okay. Well, mine is very specific <laughs> to my <laughs> nerdiness and my work in psychology, but it, it, it was actually James Gleek's uh, book, Chaos, of making a, it's called Chaos, Making a New Science. And it's where I learned about chaos theory in my master's program that then led to me studying chaos theory and writing my doctorate dissertation on it. So all of this whole like coaching through chaos and everything is because my doctorate work also was in chaos theory and coming up with a way of using chaos theory Uh, a certain idea of chaos theory as a way of mapping a person through change. And so for me, that was like the most impactful book because it gave me the direction that I wanted to take my work in psychology. And then, you know, just on a fun note, I get to tell people I'm a chaostician, just like Jeff Goldblum and, you know, Jurassic Park. So I am a an actual chaostician. <laughs> I love that. When I heard that, I was like, oh, that cracks me up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so so I'm I'm an actually an inner nerd, yes. <laughs> That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for all of your insight and your vulnerability and sharing all of the story with us. I am very honored you were willing to be on this today. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having me. What a treat it was for me to get to interview Colleen, and I know you all enjoyed it too. One thing that she said that really caught my attention was that through this challenge in her life, she became aware of the importance of creating a healthy support system before crisis. And I love that. The importance of finding people who you can create a tribe with is the best thing you can do for yourself for your future self. And the way to do that is to be that for someone else. Be the kind of person you need. Be the part of someone else's tribe and love them the way that you need to be loved. Be involved, be vulnerable, and show empathy and grace. Laugh with people and cry with them. Give of your time and resources. Give yourself then you will have a tribe that is willing to be there for you and they won't think twice. And you will be so glad. You will be so glad you put in the time. There's no substitute for time. You can't do it when you need it. You have to do it before. Who's in your tribe? Who would you like to be in your tribe? Seek them out. Create a support system that your future self might need. You know, another thing that I haven't stopped thinking about was her discussion on just doing the things she had to do next and doing the right thing, the next right thing. (laughs) For all the Frozen 2 fans out there, you know what I'm talking about. It's so true that we don't have to know everything and answer all the questions, know all that's ahead when when we head into transition in our lives. 
Right now, the world is at the beginning of perhaps the biggest upset I have known in my lifetime. So much is going to change. So many people's lives are filled with uncertainty and loss and crisis. And life feels like it will never be the same. And it might not. Dr. Mullen talked about this when she started feeling overwhelmed, sad, frustrated, and all the feelings that come with this huge life change. She just focused on what it was that she had to do and do the next right thing. When you don't know what to do, so much to think about, so much to handle. Maybe there's loss and change and transition and everything is different. Just do the next right thing. So, you know, in the movie Frozen 2, there's a song, The Next Right Thing. The last part of the song goes, it goes like this. I won't look too far ahead. It's too much for me to take. But break it down to the next breath, this next step. This next choice is the one I can make. So I'll walk through this night, stumbling blindly toward the light and do the next right thing. And with the dawn, what comes then when it's clear that everything will never be the same again, then I'll make the choice to hear that voice and do the next right thing. Have you been aware of all the change coming? Is it happening in your life now and you feel overwhelmed with all of the decisions you need to make or that you'll have to make? So much to think about and do. So much to think about and you don't know all the answers. What's your next right thing? What's the next thing you have to do? The right thing to do. Not the easiest, not even the best for you necessarily, but the right thing. You know what that is. Just do it. Then the next right thing will come. And the next. You'll be okay. So love your tribe. Stay safe. And do your next right thing. I'm so glad you joined us. Make sure to subscribe so you can get all the episodes. And you can help support our podcast by clicking the support button in the show notes or going to our website essentiallybetterlife.com Follow me on social at Essentially Better Life and check out my website for all kinds of information on business and personal coaching, my book, and even some great stuff on essential oils. Thanks for listening. Blessings and be well, my friends.